you're a part of has to have. One big draw is an engaging youth ministry. You want good teaching, you want lots of students, you want fun events, you want an annual mission trip, and parents want to see their kids love coming to church, whether it's Sunday morning, Friday nights, or the midweek Bible study. I still remember my first youth event. I'm not making this up. Toilet Bowl Olympics. It was amazing. There was jousting with toilet bowl plungers. They took toilet bowl seats and you had to have beanbag tossed through it. And right in the middle of the room was a toilet bowl filled with lemonade and an old Henry bar for anyone who wanted to go dunking. It was amazing. <laughs> Another big draw is what type of worship takes place at the church. Are you looking for traditional worship? Are you looking for contemporary worship? Are you looking for a blend of the two? Some people love a highly produced service. Some people want something a little bit smaller, a little bit more intimate. Last week, my wife and I took the Sunday off, and we were visiting a, a local church plant here in South Edmonton, and they had a fog machine. And I don't know if it was because it was the long weekend or whatever the case might be. The guy who was operating it got a little too intense, and the guy behind me had a coughing fit and had to leave. We're not going to do that to you in Project 18, which is coming up in September. Well, all these things are important. We often choose what's a priority. Is it youth ministry? Is it worship? Is it engaging community? Is it justice? Is there something for my children, whatever their age might be? For myself, when I was in Calgary for the very first time, what was so important to me was a church in which there was great Sunday preaching. Sometimes people will say, wow, the preacher really made the Bible come alive. And I don't think they mean anything negative with this comment, but the Bible already is alive. The author of Hebrews writes, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. I like the analogy of the Bible teacher being a tour guide. Perhaps you're discovering one of the great cities of the world and you're in London or New York, you're on a double-decker bus, and you love how that tour guide is able to just make that place, that scene, come alive. He's pointing out the great history that takes place in the city. He's pointing out everything that's happening there. It's pointing out what's taken place in years gone by. You've gone on an African safari and people are pointing out the beauty and the majesty of a giraffe, of an elephant, of lions, roaring uh, going across the land my pastor in calgary was an excellent tour guide his introductions were captivating i was already drawn in before he even opened the bible he regularly spoke of the culture and gave background information of the text at hand and every week he left us with something to think about something to do and spoke about the glory of jesus christ through my internship through school through my local church i was falling more and more in love with the author of the scriptures. Now I completely understand that the Sunday morning sermon may not be your favorite part. Perhaps something else is the reason that you're here this morning. But I hope that you fall in love with God's word. I hope that you come and listen to myself or Mel or a guest preacher and go, I love hearing what the pastor has to say this morning. I hope you enjoy being a part of your small groups in which you can ask questions and dive deeper into God's word. I hope that you enjoy listening to podcasts and reading great books. The Word of God is an absolute integral part of the ministry we do at Ellerslie, and we believe that it is the primary way in which God reveals himself to us. And as we look at this ultimate charge that Paul gives to Timothy, if we're going to impact South Edmonton and work together for tomorrow, the Word of God must be central to our ministry. 
If you have your Bibles with you or an app on your phone or tablet, I invite you to open them up. If you don't, you might want to grab a Bible in the pew rack in front of you. And if you don't own one, it's our gift to you this morning. We're in 2 Timothy chapter 4. The Bible can be a little bit of an intimidating book. If you open your, to your book of uh, the contents, you'll find the book of 2 Timothy. The big numbers are the chapter numbers. The small numbers are the verse numbers. We're in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. As you're flipping there, a little bit of context as to what we've discovered over the last few weeks. There's a strong message of endurance in 2 Timothy. In the very first verse of the very first chapter, the author begins, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. He wants us to understand this life that Jesus has to offer. No one else and nothing else can offer you this type of life. It's life to the full. It's life that gives you hope. It's life that gives you joy. It's life that Paul, being that mentor, is giving to Timothy, his young protege. I want you to understand this. I want you to understand how great and marvelous, incredible is Jesus Christ, our King. The very Son of God who left the throne room of heaven who never gave up his divinity, but rather took on his humanity, was born of a virgin, lived an absolutely perfect life, and died on the cross, not just for our sins, but for the sins of the entire world. Three days later, he rose from the dead, and a few weeks after that, ascended back to heaven. And he wants us to understand the life that Jesus has to offer, and saying that in doing so, your endurance will be tested. The world around you will often disagree with your Christian worldview. There may even be people, false teachers, who infiltrate the church, and you need to stand firm against them. Last week, as Pastor Mel tackled all of chapter 3, I love how he uh, named his sermon, The Upstream Challenge. The entire world clamoring for your attention. It's easy to fall prey to what the world has to offer. But will we regularly, day after day, week after week, year after year, say, God, I am all in for you. If I were reading this book for the first time, I think I'd be ready for that next step. Okay, Paul, I'm in. What would you have me do? What would you have me know? If you enjoy taking notes, I've entitled this part of the outline, he presents the charge. This is 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Do you feel the gravity of those words? I was saying to Pastor Tim earlier this week, I wish I had a deep bass voice like James Earl Jones or something of that like. Imagine being at your graduation ceremony or a special event held in your honor. And you're sitting in the front row, you're wearing a cap and gown, and out comes the guest speaker for the day. And it's someone who you not only know, but you have the utmost respect for. And as they walk up to the pulpit, they look to you, they give you a nod, and they smile at you. And you think, I can't wait to hear what this person has to say. Not only are they an expert in their field, not only have they accomplished so much in their lifetime, but they are a person of immense character, a person I deeply respect. What are they going to say? In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, will judge the living and the dead in a view of his appearing, I give you this charge. Already, don't you want to impress him? When a student hands in his paper to her teacher, 
he wants to impress her teacher. I said the, I mixed up my pronouns, you know what I mean. He wants to impress his teacher. He wants him, the teacher to understand, I am working as hard as I can when I hand in this paper, this project, this internship. I'm giving everything I can so that you would be impressed. That 15-year-old soccer player wants her teammates to know that they can count on her. She'll be there at practices. She won't commit a selfish foul. She'll outwork her opponents, and she is the key to the success of the team. As parents, we want to impress our children, not just when it's career day, but we want our children to know that they can love us, that they can come running up to us in the middle of a pastoral prayer or whatever the case might be. And at times, you might need to discipline them, but you want your children to know we are here for you. Yet in the midst of all that is taking place, we are reminded that God's kingdom is the ultimate authority by which we should be concerned. Remember God. Remember he is the ultimate judge. Remember his kingdom. Says the apostle Paul, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience and careful instruction. The word preach is a command from Paul. It comes with all the gravity, all the formality, all the authority that should be listened to and obeyed. But then look what he says next. In season and out of season. This isn't just on Sunday mornings. This is all the time. There's a story in John chapter 4 where Jesus is exhausted after a long journey. And I don't know about you, but when I go on a long hike, when I come home from soccer, when I come home after an exhausting day of work, I just want to put my feet up and relax. But Jesus doesn't want to waste an opportunity. John chapter 4, verses 4 to 6, Jesus had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Suddenly, a woman arrives and politely, Jesus asks her for a drink, and she responds this way in verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. The sixth hour means it was noon. It would have been incredibly hot outside. They had just been traveling for some time, and it was time to rest. The travelers would have been thirsty. Most people, Jesus included, just wants to put his feet up. He just wants to rest. He just wants to be by himself for a moment. But an opportunity comes up with someone who deeply needs to hear the gospel. We know Jesus is tired. The authors just told us that. But here's an opportunity, and he doesn't want to waste it. Verse 10, Jesus says to the woman, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. A comment like this would certainly pique your curiosity, and it did hers. What is this living water that you're talking about, she asked. And Jesus answers, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The word gospel means good news, and this is good news indeed. And Jesus wants people everywhere to hear the good news. There's another story both in Mark 5 and Luke 8 where Jesus had just finished preaching to a large crowd of people and a man by the name of Jairus comes up to him and says, Teacher, I've heard that you can heal people. I have a daughter and she's at home and she's about to die. Will you come to my home and will you heal her? So Jesus and his disciples and a crowd of people are following Jesus seeing, Is it true? Can this man really heal people? 
And as they're walking towards Jairus' home, another woman comes up who's been bleeding for 12 years, hoping and hoping that this man, this Jesus, this Messiah can heal her. And she reaches out and touches his cloak. Jesus immediately turns around and says, who has touched me? And his disciples say, teacher, look, there's so many people surrounding you. Why would you even ask that? And he goes, I felt power go out from me. And this woman who has been sick for 12 years, who has spent her entire life savings trying to get better, says, it was me. He's tired from teaching. He's going to a man's home to make a pastoral visit. And yet he stops and he spends time with this woman. And while he's talking to her about the good news of the gospel, Jairus' servant runs up and says, tell the teacher not to come. Your daughter has died. And Jesus says, don't worry. Have faith in me. He is always prepared to share with anyone who comes up to him the good news of the gospel. Paul was in jail when he wrote the second letter to Timothy and it gave him ample opportunity to observe his surroundings, including the prison guard. This idea of being prepared has the idea of suddenness, the idea of readiness, like an attentive soldier always on guard, ready for a surprise attack at any moment, needing to do what a soldier will need to do. A number of years ago, a man by the name of Erwin McManus wrote a book called Seizing Your Divine Moment. I've read the book. I don't remember much of what it said, but the title says it all. While we're on mission at work, we're on the mission at the grocery store to get that gallon of milk. We're on mission just to mow our lawn. Are we ready to seize our divine moment? Are you ready and are you prepared in season and out of season to interact with somebody? When you just know in the back of your mind, I need to stop. I need to talk with that individual. I need to spend more time with my neighbor. My coworker, my classmate really wants to talk right now. This good news is for everybody. Certainly it's for those who don't know Jesus, but it's also for everybody in this room, those who have a relationship with God. We need the gospel all the time. We need the gospel at our funeral, reminding ourselves that those who believe in Jesus will one day spend eternity with him and God will wipe every tear away from our eye. We need the gospel in the midst of our failures, knowing that not only has Jesus forgiven our sins, but that he has a plan for each and every one of us, regardless of what our past might be. We need the gospel when everything is going right, reminding that everything we have, whether it's our finances, whether it's our material wealth, whether it's the actions of our hands, the jobs that we have, our mental ability, all of it comes from God. We need the gospel in the midst of depression, knowing that Jesus, too, walked through a dark and awful time where he felt forsaken by God, but the sun comes in the morning. We need the gospel when we're going through trials, knowing that Jesus is the truth and the life and will set us free. We need the gospel every day, being reminded of the depth of love that exists in Jesus, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We have been charged to proclaim the good news of Jesus. The second part of the outline this morning, why it's so important. I've entitled it, The Necessity of the Word. This is verses three and four. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myth. A number of years ago, I was watching the Oprah Winfrey show with my sisters and the topic turned to religious matters and one of the guests said, 
uh, my, the God who I worship, the Christian God, is a jealous God. And Oprah Winfrey, with all of her power and all of her uh, personality, said, hold it right there. The God who I worship is not jealous. And her audience went, mm-hmm, and did the head nod and just in agreement with her. But just because someone says it doesn't make it true. The truth is God is a jealous God. God is for himself and he knows the idols we create and worship will ultimately disappoint us. It's only in him that we can find the fullness of life. Over and over again we read in the scriptures that God is a jealous God, including in the Ten Commandments. Commandment number two, which you can read in Exodus chapter 20, says this, You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above, on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Someone could easily argue, Dave, of course the Bible is going to contradict the current worldview. That's only to be expected. And I wholeheartedly agree, and that's the point. You see, according to Forbes, digital marketing experts estimate that more than most Americans are exposed to 4,000 to 10,000 ads every single day. This doesn't even include the conversations you have in daily activities. It doesn't include the shows you watch, the books you read, the conversations you have with friends and coworkers. And we're constantly taking in that which is opposed to the gospel. So it's only through the good news of Jesus Christ that we can combat that way of thinking. How are we to think? How are we to act? What should our lives look like? It's that we are continually being renewed and being transformed by the renewing of our minds. In Acts chapter 7, we read this incredible speech of a man by the name of Stephen. He's about to be murdered for his faith, and he calls out the hypocrisy of those who are in attendance. And at the end of his uh, sermon, he says this, or pardon me, the author says this, when the people heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. They covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. You think about that picture? Covering your ears and running towards somebody. There's no promise of an eager response, even among God's people. And none of this is even new in teaching in the biblical narrative. In Jeremiah chapter 5, we read, The prophets prophesy lies, the priests rule by their own authority, and my people love it this way. Another prophet, Ezekiel, says, Indeed, to them you are nothing more than one who sings love songs with a beautiful voice and plays an instrument well, for they hear your words but do not put them into practice. Many biblical authors talk about shepherds who, instead of caring for their sheep, lead them astray and are actually the wolves that other shepherds are trying to protect them from. So what are some of the false teachings in 2018? Perhaps one of the most dangerous is the health and wealth gospel. And it comes in many different forms. Some people will teach that if you believe in Jesus, all your problems will go away. It's not true. Others will teach that if you follow Jesus... His desire for you is that you would never be sick and committed, fully committed followers will have a life of abundance. It's not true. A more subtle approach would be like this. Give, church to, um, give money to the church and all your financial problems will go away. It's not true. Many of the Old Testament prophets were killed for delivering the message that people didn't like. We read of Paul who wrote this letter who experienced 
terrible suffering for the sake of the gospel. And Jesus, the only man who can claim to be perfect, died an excruciating death on the cross. None of them received health and wealth. Another dangerous topic in the church today is this whole idea of sexual identity. Even bringing up this topic might make you think, okay, what's the preacher going to say? Allow me to put you at ease. Think about how Jesus treated people. The woman caught in adultery who was thrown at his feet. The known prostitute who wiped his feet while he was talking to others. The horrible tax collectors who were ripping people off left and right and probably had lifestyles that we wouldn't admire. He always treated them with love. He always treated them with respect. And he always spoke to them the truth. The Bible is clear from the opening chapter Genesis 1:27 God created man in his own image in the image of God he created him male and female he created them People might feel different from time to time and may not relate to the sex that you were given in your womb If you feel that way this church loves you and we want to journey with you A journey that will regularly include encouragement not only in your sexual identity of what God has given you, but that sex itself is saved for husband and wife within a marriage relationship. Something else I think worth mentioning is the questioning of the reliability of Scripture. It's the first thing Satan did when we're introduced to him in Genesis chapter 3. He looked at Eve and he said, did God really say that? After a particularly difficult sermon in my previous church, I had a woman come up to me and said, if the Apostle Paul wrote that today, he would have said it completely different. And then she stormed off. He wouldn't have. The same thing he wrote 2,000 years ago, he'd say it again today. We know this in Hebrews chapter 13. The author writes, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. One of God's attributes is that he is completely unchanging. And just last week, Pastor Mel spoke about one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. If you have your Bibles open, you can see it right there. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is God-breathed. It is useful for teaching, rebuking, and correcting and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Notice how Paul wraps up this paragraph in verse 5. But you, keep your head in all situations... Endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. I love that line, keep your head in all situations. Makes great TV when you see people yelling at each other, doesn't it? Sports, politics, culture. I'm a big sports fan. And I love when people debate who is the greatest basketball player of all time. Is it LeBron James or is it Michael Jordan? It's obviously LeBron James. Should we have stricter guidelines on gun control? How would you rate the new Star Wars movie? Was it good or was it not? How can you say that? But the Christian who is sharing the gospel is expected to keep a cool head. Look and see how Jesus interacts with people. If you were to watch a movie of my life, I'm telling you right now, it would be boring I want to treat people with respect. I want to treat people with love. And even when people disagree with me, I want them to walk away thinking, wow, we don't see eye to eye, but he never said anything painful to me. Wouldn't that be great? Coworker, neighbor, classmate, friend, 
even when people disagree with us, that they would walk away thinking, wow, that person genuinely listened to me. We completely disagreed, but they treated me with love and with respect, and I'm going to think more on what they had to say. I enjoy the movement in this passage. Paul starts by presenting the charge, preach the gospel. He then goes on to explain the necessity of the gospel and why it's so important. He wraps it up by saying, look towards this awaiting reward. This is verses 6 to 8. For I, Paul, am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. In three short verses, Paul talks about the present, he talks about the past, and he talks about the future. Living in the present, he says, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. In the Old Testament, the drink offering was the final offering of the sacrificial system. This was the offering that followed the burnt offerings and the grain offerings that were prescribed by Moses. And Paul says his death as his final offering to God is a, is a life that has been full of sacrifices. Wine poured out over the altar to say that it is finished. How are we working together for a better tomorrow? I have two questions and I hope that you can answer both of them. The first one is this. How will you preach the word personally? This isn't just a passage for the pastors in the room. This is a passage for all of us who are here. It's the ultimate charge. Preach the word. How will you preach the word personally? What will you do so those closest to you, those in your sphere of influence, will hear the good news of the gospel? Even as I'm talking, are there faces that come to mind? Will you pray for those faces regularly? We have a ministry at our church called Alpha. Alpha is a series of interactive sessions exploring the basics of Christian faith and is one of our primary tools in which we share Jesus as a church. The whole ministry is about sharing the gospel with those who don't yet have a relationship with Jesus or are exploring their relationship with Jesus. The ministry leader for Alpha is a lady in our church named LaDonna. And she said to me on more than one occasion, you know, Dave, it's not always the people I pray who would come to Alpha who come. But the more I pray for people by name, the more people sign up. I might be praying for these five people, but God will bring another five people. I might invite these six people to Alpha, but God's going to bring a different six people. I'm just here to invite. The next time we run Alpha is in September. So here's your three months heads up. Wouldn't it be great if LaDonna was super stressed out? That we have so many people who want to come to Alpha that we don't have a room big enough for it? Over the next three months, as you think about people who you would like to share the gospel with, who can you invite to Alpha? Would you like to be involved in Alpha in some way, shape, or form? We would love to invite you to be a part of that. The first question, how will you preach the word personally? The second question is nearly identical. How will you preach the word corporately? And this might sound intimidating, like I'm asking you to stand up and preach. Don't worry, we're not asking you to do that. What I mean by that question is how can you work at Ellerslie so that the gospel might be proclaimed? 
a Sunday morning often starts with the worship team. They're not standing behind this pulpit preaching the same way I am right now, but they are setting the stage, inviting you to know, love, and serve Jesus through powerful music. There are people right now working in the nursery so that moms might have that break, so that moms and dads can sit here and listen to the gospel. On a typical Sunday morning, we have 40 volunteers in children's ministry teaching kids uh, the good news of the gospel so that parents can come and hear the good news of the gospel. Do you have the gift of hospitality? Will you open up your home for a small group? Do you love working in the kitchen? Will you work in the kitchen so that those who are attending events might have great food to eat so that they can hear the gospel? Do you love welcoming people? Do you love making this building beautiful? We have teams that do that. Will you be a part so that the good news of the gospel will continually be preached? Will you join us to work together for tomorrow? You see, Paul is living in the present, but he's come to the end of his life, and you'll notice that he's looking at the past in verse 7. This is what it says. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. In the book of Ephesians, which Paul also writes, he talks about the armor of God. And when I think of the analogies and the symbolism that Paul uses, I can't help but think of Paul as this grizzled old Roman soldier. He's got salt and pepper beard and hair. And he's older, but he is still strong and fierce. His helmet is dented, but still firmly planted on his head. His shield has blood on it, but it is firmly in his hand and he is ready to fight. His armor certainly not polished anymore. It has been dulled and dented and beat up through years of fighting, but it is upon him and he is ready to continue this fight. His sword has niches, but it's strong as ever. His breastplate and belt are ready to do the work. He has fought the good fight and he has won. When we stand before God, what will you say? When you talk about your wealth, will you say, look at this great portfolio I have put together? Or will you say, I sacrifice that we would have a building to worship in. I sacrifice so that our global partners around the world would tell people about Jesus. When you talk about your accomplishments, will you say about all the great things that you have done in your life at work and at school and at hobby? Or will you say, this is what I have done to lead people to faith in relationship with Jesus? Will your words have been used to tear people down? Or will they be used to build people up? Verse 8. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Isn't it a beautiful picture of the gospel? For those who are faithful to Christ, they will wear the victor's crown. This isn't just imagery either. It's really going to happen. In the book of Revelation, Jesus says, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Later in chapter 3, to him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We not only get to join in God's work here on earth, 
sharing the good news of gospel to each other and also to the world around us. We get to wear the victor's crown if we are faithful to the end. An invitation to sit and reign with Jesus Christ, our glorious king. And that news is incredible. Let's go share it. Heavenly Father, thank you for the book of 2 Timothy. Thank you for the encouragement of working together for tomorrow. Thank you that you have gifted every single one of us in this room and you have a plan for every one of us in this room. I pray, God, that you would give us boldness and courage to share the gospel. Boldness and courage to talk to our neighbors, our classmates, our coworkers, our friends about the good news of Jesus. Boldness and courage to invite people into our homes to share meals with them, to love them, to be open to seizing that divine moment that it comes. Boldness and courage that next September we would invite people to Alpha and we would sit with them. And boldness and courage to be involved in the mission here at Ellerslie, to see the good news of Jesus Christ spread across South Edmonton, that we would work together for a better tomorrow. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.